You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name's Christina and today I'm joined by Francis Malkai. Francis, thanks so much for joining me today and welcome to our podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Fran, you're going to be talking to our listeners today a little bit about how to welcome the gender diverse community into our practice, which is something that you're really passionate about and a staunch advocate for this community. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about where that passion comes from? I'll introduce myself. Mm. My name is Francis. My impersonal gendered noun is woman. My pronouns are she and her. I have a number of adjectives. They include cheeky, wicked and transgender. Um, My life experience includes odd 25 years in general practice. I haven't been in general practice for some time, but it's a very important part of my life story. I'm relatively late in life as uh, coming to an awareness of my gender identity. So I've been socially and medically transitioning for about two and a half years now. I'm over 60, so is salient to the discussion because the stories of people's understanding about their gender identity have a vast amount of variety. It provides a lot of challenges both for the community and for the people who are involved in their care. Absolutely, and that um, probably leads into what I wanted to talk to you about first of all, and that's around how patients from the gender diverse community may present to us. I suppose there's, there's broadly two scenarios. One is where your patient wants specifically to talk about their gender experience and the medical elements of that, and of course. There's the other scenario where um, you may have someone who's been living their authentic gender for 10, 20 years and they're presenting for something that's not specifically related to that but it will call on your skills to understand the both the attendant biology and also the complexities of any pre-existing medical management they've had for their gender identity. It's also important to remember as an overview that we're talking about a natural state of affairs called gender incongruence. People who are gender incongruent have a different experience of gender to that assigned based on their external genitalia at birth. And I have met a number of people in my community who have always known exactly what their gender was. They've never actually felt particularly incongruent about it. It's just them, and they've not had any dysphoria about the fact that their anatomy doesn't match their experience of self. But that's rare. Generally speaking, the community does have a negative experience called dysphoria. So if someone presents to you first up and says, I don't feel like a boy, that's a discussion to have about their experience of gender. You won't get that very often in your clinical practice. We're talking of population incidence of a bit less than 1%, as best anyone knows. Research is appallingly shallow. And a lot of the people you'll meet in general practice will have already come through 
a subspecialty person. They may have had an endocrinologist already involved, or they may have seen a GP who specialises in gender diverse medicine, and they've found that person through community. When people present with something that's not an immediate discussion about their identity, that's probably trickier. I have heard so many stories of people in my community presenting to a hospital emergency service with a, a broken ankle and being asked about what's in their knickers. So the community does get exposed to morbid curiosity, even from doctors. If a six-foot-tall, broad-shouldered, heavily bearded human, whose name is Mrs Smith, and is presenting femme, wants to talk about her blood pressure, that's what she's there for. Now, in the back of your skull as a GP, or in the back of my skull as a GP, her biological risk factors and biological consequences of having elevated blood pressure are going to follow the profile most commonly associated with 46XY. Unless she's not... The person I'm describing has clearly had a testosterone-driven adolescence at some point. But you'll get to see people who haven't. You'll get to see people who've avoided the horrors of the wrong adolescence <laughs> and had the right, had the right puberty first go. They're lucky. So when Mrs Smith appears, there's not really a lot to, to engage with her about her 46XY biology. But clearly you need to know about it. Clearly you, you need to have it in your, in your clinical measures. Mm. So if someone comes to you with incongruence and dysphoria, that's focus and it's either you're going to be saying great, that's right up my alley, I've been doing all my homework about gender diversity, or you'll be saying inside your head, oh my God, what the expletive deleted do I do with this one? Um, so hopefully after this podcast, you'll have gone and checked out your local pathway, or you'll have decided that your core competency should expand to include um, gendered medicine of this sort. And for all of the rest of it, it's take your leave, listen to your patient the way you listen to all of your patients, you know, you if you're a, I'm a white person, Malkahe, a nice Celtic name, um, and if someone who is a black, in, black indigenous person of colour is talking to me, I don't. I don't have their cultural experience. My job is to listen carefully. And this is no different. And in general practice, you meet the full range of humans. And I think your example of Mrs Smith is a great example as well of breaking down some of the stereotypes. We were chatting a little bit before we started recording around, you know, there can be some confusion around what sits under that rainbow banner and that one can equal the other. And that, you know, as a GP, this idea that if someone for who, for all intents and purposes, looks like 46XY, if their preference is to have the pronouns her, she, that we should accept that and not be thinking about sort of the stereotypes that we might have or preconceived ideas that we might have that actually we can't put those boxes around and that 
you know, we have to accept people as how they present and how they identify, I guess. Okay. You've just dug a couple of lovely holes. Oh, great. Okay, let's go. Let's okay. go into those holes. The notion of preferred pronouns is a nonsense, okay? My preferred colour is pink. My preferred motor vehicle is a Jaguar. Nice. <laughs> I don't own one, but that's my, pref- that's my preference. <laughs> if you could, you if, would. Yeah, I have in the past. I, I used to have a lot of money before transition. I don't now. It's very disruptive. Very Point disru- taken. Very disruptive. Uh, so my pronouns aren't my preferred pronouns. They are my pronouns. They are the ones that I use because they are the ones that belong to me. If I addressed my pronouns as she, they... That would be an indication that I've principally experienced myself as femme and she is the, the pronoun that best fits. If I am less binary, if I'm less trans woman and more non-binary femme, they might belong more accurately to me as the pronoun. That works. Mm. With an awakening about gender diversity, one of the attempts, good-hearted attempts, has been to ask what people's preferred pronouns are. It's fundamentally patronising and mm. it's, not, it's not language that's helpful. So, let's do a screamingly quick gender diversity 101. So we have sex, a biological construct, usually assigned at birth, not always accurately because there are intersex variants and while it almost always aligns reasonably well with a chromosomal status it doesn't always Um, just think of your your Klinefelters and your Turners so they're not 46 with a, a selection of XY or XX so that's sex and we understand that medically quite primitively because we only consider it to do with the reproductive tract. Mm. Now, strangely enough, it, it does have crossover into the renal system because there are things like prostates and ureters and urethras that get in the way. And I say primitive because in a whole body understanding, a whole person understanding, there are phenotypically different experiences within the central nervous system and within the pituitary, hypothalamic pituitary, gonadal and adrenal axes. So instead of being all confused and surprised that people might have a different gender experience in their view of self, it's a variation in the phenotypical expression within the central nervous system. So sex is biology and we tend to mainly exclude the personal experience because apparently we still believe in Cartesian dualism. Gender is the experience of self. Now it's obviously culturally defined and culturally informed, but given the number of young, when I say young, I'm talking three, four, five, six-year-old humans, whose only cultural experience is the toys they see around them, the the common expectations of what their assigned sex is likely to uh, favour, 
and they're saying, no, you, you know, the little, little human with a pee-pee says I'm a girl. Well, that's not had much chance to be strongly culturally defined. So that gendered experience is really very basic. And for people who are cisgendered, as in their gender matches the sex assigned at birth, so their brain wiring matches the location of their gonads, <laughs> then they run around completely oblivious to the fact that they have that symmetry. So it's very difficult for them to get a handle on the amount of complexity experienced by humans who don't have that symmetry. That's gender. Now, sexuality is your experiences of sexual attraction. Now, again, there's all sorts of difficult language here. Mm. One of the things that stopped me becoming gender aware is that I have always liked girls that way. I've always been gynophilic and all of my behavioural idiosyncrasies through life, my flamboyance, my dancing, my sashaying through the rooms, my preference to play with dolls, my desire to do ballet, all of those were met with, oh my God, do you think he's gay? And I would regularly through life be asked by people, including wives, more than one, oh dear, whether I was gay. And, well, no, I like girls that way. And I still do. That's, so my sexual orientation has been towards women. And it remains so. And that's not at all uncommon. For transgender women, it's not at all uncommon. It's also not at all uncommon for transgender women to have a story, as one of my good friends does, that... She became gender aware in her 20s, always considered herself to be sexually interested in women, and having gone through a number of years living in transition and evolving as a human, started to realise that in fact she had internalised a huge amount of homophobia, mm. and as she matured past that, decided, well, actually, no, I like the boys now. So, oh my goodness, I'm a woman and I'm straight. So her sexuality evolved mm. as part of her transition. Other people have stable sexuality. There are plenty of transgender humans who are asexual. Mm. And let's not make our communities non-binary folk invisible because they commonly are invisible. And for our listeners who might not fully understand what you mean when you say non-binary or asexual, when you use those terms, can you can you you know spell those out a little bit, just so that we can make sure everyone has a clear kind of shared understanding around okay. what these terms mean? So, quick history lesson: transgender was um, first connoted in the eighties, uh, and it was actually connoted by an American writer. And she wanted to make a distinction between transsexuals 
and her. So she was assigned male at birth. She lived as a woman. She was happy to... She was a woman. That was her authentic life. She had no interest in having any surgical realignment done. So she wasn't transsexual. She didn't want her anatomy altered to match her. She was quite happy with how she was. So she cre created a brand new word, transgendered. And one of the rarities of um, minority life, that word came before cisgendered. So it's the, the standard Latin prefix trans away and cis of as is. So everyone else was cisgendered. Now within the people who are not cisgendered, there are quite a lot of folk who are fit the traditional binary of male-female. So I'm quite happy to describe myself best as a transgender woman, and I'm fairly binary. I'm fairly typically femme. I'm fairly typically girly. And there are trans men who are spectacularly masculine and quite obviously one of the blokes. There are people who do not fit comfortably on either end of the gender spectrum. And they're not binary, they're not either or. I can give a very distinct example. The human I'm married to, she, the pronoun that belongs to her, assigned female at birth, grew up and would have been described as a typical tomboy. And she does not experience herself as male or female. She's a bit of both, somewhere in between, and when I come home, the expression that I meet at the front door is either a, a gently dikey lesbian or a moderately testosterone-driven young man. Now, she's not had any interest in any sort of medical intervention. She's not had any interest in changing her hormone patterns. She had no interest in having some testosterone. And she's um, actually reasonably asexual. So she's non-binary because she doesn't sit at either end. Okay. She's gender fluid because her experience of herself and the subsequent expression of that shifts a bit between yeah. a slightly maleish and a slightly butch femaleish yeah. version of her. And there are plenty of non non-binary people who don't have language to describe their not being typically male or typically female in their internal world. Now, um, and I think that's because we probably don't have language for it. It's still an evolving space, really, isn't it? It, it is. Now, I mentioned cultural stuff before. Within Australians' uh, First Nation Indigenous population, there are quite quite a few of the nation's cultural sets include brother boy and sister girl status. And brother boy was a person who was identified as female anatomically at birth and for the better part of their lives anatomically female and lived as male and was involved in men's business. So they were culturally accepted. The, the analogy is not exact from my careful 
listening to other people because clearly I don't have any first-hand useful experience. It's not exactly culturally analogous to my experience. Another friend who's a, who was, she describes herself as non-binary two-spirit. She's an Indigenous Australian, First Nations lady. Um, and she's happy with lady and female. So that that's our term, two-spirits, essentially belongs to um, Native American and Native Canadian populations. And there are some analogous cultural similarities within Australia's Indigenous communities. But it's nuanced descriptor and the moment we try and simplify it down to you know, tick which box, we're doing harm. So non-binary, it is difficult and it can be quite, quite challenging to get used to the singular they in conversation. Asexual, LGBTIQA+, A for asexual, stroke aromantic. Asexual people have um, sexual orientation like it sounds. They're without one. Now some asexual people will also describe themselves as pansexual, which is a different construct. And the, the pansexual construct is I'm sexually attracted to people who, with whom I emotionally engage and who are interesting to me and their bits don't matter. And in fact their gender structure doesn't matter. So you'll have asexual people who are still interested in an intimate way in others, but it's not the experience of sexual attraction that most people understand. Fran, this is such an interesting and informative discussion that we're having, and I want to keep chatting, but we are running out of time. So let's wrap it up for today. But listeners, please join us for the next episode of The Good GP, because I'm going to be back chatting with Fran and continuing our discussion around how we can welcome the gender diverse community into our practices. (music) 